0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Most of the time we think about nuclear weapons of the nuclear age, um, sort of in terms of what's going on at the moment. Terrorism now, Cold War then, and long-term thinking is the kind of thing that Dick Rhodes brings to the subject because he's been on the beat of nuclear weapons um, since his book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb. And so he's seen this kind of trend, not just in terms of the explosions on the surface of the Earth and underground explosions, but how it's actually playing out in the technology, and the politics, and the geopolitics. Richard Rhodes.
1: Thank you. One of the things that intrigues me about that sequence that we just saw is the extent to which those tests over the years were a kind of communication, very low-grade communication back and forth between the United States and the Soviet Union. The other thing that's intriguing and I think hopeful in a quantifiable hard data sort of way is that they slowed down and essentially stopped. The only tests that have been conducted in this century uh, have been those tests in North Korea. It may well be that they're going to be the last of them. We'll, We'll see. Or we may have a few outliers like Iran that need to express that particular national will, that particular reach for national prestige before they're prepared to go any further. But what I'd like to talk with you about tonight is where we got to after the end of the Cold War, where we are now and how we might move from here to some more stable state, which might be the abolition of nuclear weapons. I think we'd all like that if, if it played out right. Or it might not be, it might be something else. But one of the things that surprises me is how many Americans evidently think we got rid of our nuclear weapons at the end of the Cold War. At first, that sounds ill-informed, but on a more fundamental level, it's really interesting that people would feel the connection between the nuclear arms race and the long Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, and understand at some really quite profound level that with the end of that long conflict We don't need nuclear weapons anymore. And at the same time, the opposite response has been present in our government in particular. An effort to find some way to rationalize keeping all the weapons that we built during the Cold War, or at least some large subset of those weapons, almost a process of looking for new enemies. Dick Cheney was Secretary of Defense in the years immediately after the Cold War under George H.W. Bush. And he is, as he's often said, someone who believes that you should be ready for any possible future. For him, there was a real effort in the early 90s to write the Defense Department document that would define a more dangerous world than I think most people here and abroad felt we had come to. And in particular, there was an effort on the part of political conservatives to, to reframe China as the coming enemy with the potential for another Cold War with China. It's been quite a struggle in those years to pull away from that particular approach. And to try to rethink everything, because the obvious thing to do is to stay with whatever you have, as if somehow the future isn't different from the present. I I hear from any number of people in the nuclear weapons business that everything is nice and stable, let's stay where we are. But of course, that's not the way the future works, certainly not the way we've seen history working. Let me read to you from a speech of George Kennan's back in the 80s. Really quite a prescient look at where we came to by the end of the Cold War. You remember there was a general crowing on the part of our president, George H.W. Bush, that we'd won the Cold War. And although some of his actions during his presidency were absolutely first class in terms of reducing nuclear armaments in pace with the former Soviet Union, taking all of our tactical nuclear weapons back to the United States, getting rid of all our tactical nukes that were ground-launched in the process, clearing out all of our nuclear weapons in South Korea, which was a real opening for North Korea to think about maybe changing its stance. But he felt the pressure as I guess we're pretty familiar with today, of the Republican right, to take a strong stance about all this and to say we won the Cold War in the sort of classic Reaganist sense. Let me give you Kennan's view 10 years before that time of what we had won and what we haven't won. He's been speaking about the Development of the Cold War between the two superpowers. It is from these great mistakes, he writes, that there has flowed, as I see it, the extreme militarization, not only of our thought, but of our lives, that has become the mark of this post war age. And this is a militarization that has had profound effects not just on our foreign policies but also on our own society. It has led to what I and many others have come to see as a serious distortion of our national economy. We have been obliged to habituate ourselves to the expenditure annually of a great portion of our national income for what are essentially negative and sterile purposes, the production of armaments, the export of armaments, and the maintenance of a vast armed force establishment. Purposes that add nothing to the real productive capacity of our economy and only deprive us every year of billions of dollars that might otherwise have gone into productive investment. To which I would just mention that today, despite a really dramatic reduction in the number of nuclear weapons that we have deployed, down as a result of this latest treaty to In a short time, only about 1,200 weapons on the U.S. side and a comparable somewhat larger number on the Soviet side, Russian side. And yet those weapons are costing us upwards of $50 billion a year simply to maintain. And this habit, Kennan goes on, this habit of pouring so great a part of our gross national product, product year after year, into sterile and socially negative forms of production has now risen to the status of what I have ventured to call a genuine national addiction. We could not now break ourselves of the habit without the most serious of withdrawal symptoms. Millions of people, in addition to those other millions who are in uniform, have become accustomed to deriving their livelihood from the military-industrial complex. Thousands of firms have become dependent on it, not to mention labor unions and communities. It is the main source of our highly destabilizing budget deficit. He goes on. And the problem is made worse by the unnecessary wastefulness of this entire exercise, by the inter-service rivalries that cause so much duplication of effort by the double standard we apply to costs and results in relation to the military economy and the civilian, by the lack of any coherent relationship between the criteria Congress applies to military expenditures and those it applies to non-military ones. To which I would just add The double standard that he mentions he's referring of course to the system that's used to build new weapons and acquire new armaments where the cost is basically paid for by the government with a with an additional profit on top where the system is jiggered so that the weapon systems that are to that are possibly to be built are 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 kind of cut in up front so that by the time it might be possible or should be necessary to eliminate them because they don't work well, it's uh, too late. It only makes sense at that point to finish them. So... Let's look at what we paid for the Cold War. These are numbers that were developed by a group of scholars in the late 90s, which I have updated to present dollars so that you understand their their force. Carl Sagan in 1995 was talking about the cost of the Cold War, and I think summed it up brilliantly in this one sentence. In other words, everything in the United States except the land. And the share of that total that was devoted to nuclear weapons and and the infrastructure around them, 7.8 trillion. Granted, not nearly the whole. But considering that only two of these weapons have ever actually been used in, in in the context of war, it's really quite amazing that we put so much trust in them and devise such an elaborate philosophical structure around the notion that somehow a first strike and a second strike and this strike and that strike, back and forth and around and so forth as if it were all a bloodless business, which of course it's not. Every year the American Society of Civil Engineers prepares a report card on America's infrastructure. This is the most recent of those report cards. It is marginally better than the one that I first looked at, which was in 2003. But as you can see, it's not, I think it reflects very accurately my personal experience, probably your personal experience, of the infrastructure we move through and live in, the holes in the roads, the crumbling schools, the bridges that fall down and so on. 2.2 trillion of that 7.8 trillion, and surely we could have done with a few fewer nuclear weapons than we built, the 20,000 or so that we built. In fact, I think we were up closer to 40. The Russians, in the course of their years, built something like 95,000 because they were operating on that system where you're supposed to overproduce every year compared to the previous year. It's 110% every year and nobody knew how to turn off the spigot. And furthermore, the system in Soviet factories was that you always put some good pieces aside so that if you screwed up the next year, you could slip those into the production and say, I overfilled fulfilled my quota, comrade. So the numbers were even worse in their case. But I ask you to think about how different this country would be had we spent this $2.2 trillion to maintain our social infrastructure rather than to build nuclear weapons that we never used and, and, and in truth, would never have used. Every president, starting with President Truman after the end of the Second World War, said clearly in private or sometimes in public that there was no political circumstance that he could imagine that would require the use of nuclear weapons. And the same was true on the Soviet side, starting at least with Nikita Khrushchev, who in his memoirs says something like, For the first three days after they gave me the briefing, I couldn't sleep. And then I realized that I would never use them and after that I slept. What were we doing? I think it's pretty clear that for political leaders, once you make the decision that you're not going to use these things, they become counters in a very complicated and elaborate political game. We know what the international game was like all through those years what has been discussed less than what I try to go into a bit in this new book of mine is how much of the nuclear arms race was for domestic consumption on both sides. On the Soviet side, where there was constantly a sense that they were behind, that we were ahead, that somehow being ahead mattered where nuclear weapons in quantity are concerned. And on our side, there was the constant drumbeat back and forth between the two political parties. And it wasn't always the Republicans who were playing the hawks and claiming the other side was weak on defense. You will, some of you will recall John Kennedy's famous missile gap, which he created by refusing to get the briefing on what we actually had and where we actually were until after he was elected and inaugurated at which point, not surprisingly, he discovered we didn't have one. We were, in fact, ahead. In fact, throughout the Cold War, it would have been an impeachable offense for an American president to have allowed the Soviet Union to get ahead of us in any meaningful sense of the word, and we never did. But those who say that we spent the Soviet Union into bankruptcy, forget about this we spent ourselves into a kind of bankruptcy too, although not one that we couldn't dig our way out of fairly easily. Now, as I said, many Americans think we got rid of our nuclear weapons at the end of the Cold War, expressing a common understanding that our nuclear weapons were there because we felt threatened by another large nuclear power. And of course we didn't, but it's also true that even a few nuclear weapons exploded in the right context would be a disaster, not simply for the region where those weapons were exploded, but also for the whole world. The threshold for world-scale systemic environmental effects is much lower than we have been led to believe the scientists who worked up the original nuclear winter model came back to it in this uh, around 2006 or 7 they were curious to see first of all if the new and improved weather and climate models that had been developed in response to the concern about global warming would give them a more nuanced and richer picture of the classic nuclear winter where you have a full-scale exchange of nuclear weapons in large numbers between, let's say, the United States and Russia. They did that work and they found that, that if anything, their model was the the conditions, the results were even worse than they had predicted before. But then they were interested at the question of, what about a small so-called regional nuclear war? What if India and Pakistan which became nuclear powers at full scale in the 1990s after the end of the Cold War? What if India and Pakistan exchanged simply 150-each Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs? The assumption in this model was that they would necessarily bomb each other's cities. They wouldn't, as we pretended to later on in the Cold War, target everything on missile silos out in the middle of Montana or Kazakhstan. They would attack each other's cities because their weapons would only basically be useful in that context. Those cities contained large volumes of flammable materials. And, in fact, the main effect of nuclear weapons, contrary to what, you may have heard, is fire. Most of the people at Hiroshima and Nagasaki died of fire, not of radiation, not of blast. Those have fairly limited extents from ground zero. But when a fireball with a temperature of 40 to 100 million degrees is ignited in the sky over a city, it simultaneously ignites all the flammable material within a very large radius. I looked at a model that had to do with a 300 kiloton warhead exploded over the Pentagon in Washington. If you only calculated blast, it would basically destroy everything out to the Capitol building. You, those of you who have been there have a sense of that distance. But if you count the effect of fire, of the ignition of materials by the huge heat of the fireball, everything all the way out to the ring roads around Washington would be completely destroyed, burned to ash, nothing organic left. So it's the firestorm that causes the real damage with nuclear weapons. And if you use even 50 on each side, 15 kiloton Hiroshima-sized bombs... This, by the way, shows you one such mass fire. This was Hiroshima that day. But this will show you what happens with that hypothetical India-Pakistan war. As I said, this was a model that was developed by the same scientists who developed the nuclear winter model, and here they used the latest simulations of weather and patterns around the world. So within a few months, you have a world where, that's something like the world of 1816 when a large volcano in Sumatra spread a pall of ash and soot around the world <clears throat> it was called The Year Without a Summer. There were hard freezes in Pennsylvania in July. I found John James Audubon, about whom I wrote a biography a few years ago, commenting on the, the conditions that summer in eastern, the eastern part of the United States. So here we are. And this is the result. 20 million proximate deaths from blast, fire, and radiation. That's the immediate firestorm or mass fire. But then, perhaps a billion people dead because their crops failed and they were living on the thin margin anyway. So, all of us are still at risk. All of us are still responsible. All of us have reason to be worried about nuclear weapons in any country's hands, including our own. And here are today's inventory. These numbers for Russia and the United States will go down in the next couple of years because of the New START Treaty. That 8,008 weapons, if you put them at, let's say, 100 kilotons each, which is probably a pretty good average. That would be about eight megatons, eight or 80, somebody with better numbers than I. I think it's only eight though. Nevertheless, the firestorms that I was showing you between India and Pakistan represented 1.5 megatons. We have nuclear weapons which have a larger yield than that. So the world is still very much one where we have a problem with nuclear weapons and where, as I'm sure you know, there is an increasing movement among national and international leaders, including President Obama, a movement to some extent begun by the so-called four horsemen, (coughs) Sam Nunn, Bill Perry, Henry Kissinger, and George Shultz. At Stanford, they were trying to think about how to commemorate the Reykjavik summit when President Reagan and President Gorbachev came within a hair's breadth of agreeing to begin the elimination of all nuclear weapons in the world, but hung up on the fact that President Reagan felt he needed a physical rather than a political defense against the possibility of cheating. And because... With, I must say, with Richard Pearl whispering over his shoulder like Iago. I, I've written a play about the Reykjavik summit, which has had some readings around the country. And I went back and reread Othello and realized that all I had to do was borrow the character. <laughs> Richard Pearl fit the mode perfectly. But be that as it may, the fact is they did re- eliminate a whole class of nuclear weapons in Europe at the time and really began a process that I think has been uh, bubbling along somewhat under the surface ever since. But these retired national, American national leaders got together at Stanford on the 20th anniversary of Reykjavik and began saying, what do we do now? And they were particularly concerned about the possibility of a terrorist nuclear weapon. That's another place where things have changed. It used to be that countries built nuclear weapons, countries that were potentially at risk of retaliation if they attacked another nuclear power or even a client of a nuclear power. With the end of the Cold War, with the spread of nuclear technology, it's theoretically now possible for a subnational group, assuming it can acquire the Necessary quantities of highly enriched uranium or plutonium, but probably highly enriched uranium because it's very hard to make a bomb out of plutonium. It takes a very sophisticated design, and it's fairly easy to make one with highly enriched uranium. But if they could acquire such material, then theoretically they could do the work of rather simple work of putting together a weapon. And the effect, as many people have discussed, of a even a small yielding, let's say, one kiloton, 1,000 tons of TNT equivalent weapon exploded in a major American city would be world scale, economically and in many other ways. I think we would probably arm ourselves to the teeth rather than sit down and say, this is madness, let's figure out a way out of this. I don't know. So there have been in the years since the end of the Cold War a number of efforts to figure out how we move on. One of the most interesting was the Canberra Commission that was called together by the Prime Minister of Australia in 1995 and 1996. A, a group, an interesting group of international figures of various kinds, members of the Swedish Parliament. Uh, the man whose hands are spread here is Richard Butler, who was a special ambassador from Australia for uh, arms control and the elimination of nuclear weapons, a very special position. And he was the chair of the Canberra Commission. What came out of the commission, besides some very good ideas about how to move toward eliminating nuclear weapons, was what Richard calls probably the most important single thing that the committee did. And that was to define what he calls the axiom of proliferation. To Richard Butler, this is the fundamental fact about the political realities today and in the future, that as long as any state has nuclear weapons, others will seek to acquire them. When President Obama spoke in Prague in the spring of 2009, he made a statement that could qualify, probably deliberately qualifies, intentionally qualifies, as a corollary or a restatement, if you will. And that was, if we believe that the spread of nuclear weapons is inevitable, then in some way we are admitting to ourselves that the use of nuclear weapons is inevitable. So, pleasant as it would be to believe that nuclear weapons are off the table, that all we have to worry about now is North Korea and Iran, only one of which actually has any nuclear weapons at this point. The fact is that so long as nuclear powers exist in the world, others are going to want to have weapons to protect themselves against those nuclear powers. Indeed, the reason the United States in 1940 and 41 and 42 decided to develop the atomic bomb in the first place is because we believed with some reason that Nazi Germany was working on a bomb. And as one person said who worked on the bomb, the prospect of a Third Reich ruling the world for a 1,000 years with nuclear weapons was absolutely abhorrent and untenable. Later, of course, we discovered that the Germans had taken a false turn and had not actually got very far at all in working on nuclear weapons, but we didn't know that when we began. <coughs> One other thing that Butler, Richard Butler says about his axiom and that applies to President Obama's corollary is that as a fundamental legal and political right in international law for one nation to maintain a nuclear arsenal and demand that other nations either not develop such an arsenal or eliminate the ones that they have is simply beyond the pale. That means that in many ways, the United States, and to a lesser degree, the former Soviet Union, Russia, are the worst offenders, not Iran, not North Korea, not Libya or Pakistan or India. We are. We maintain the largest arsenals in the world of nuclear weapons. We are, of course, the good guys. And indeed, in the George W. Bush administration for eight years, the theory of nuclear weapons possession was it's okay if the good guys have them. It's only wrong for the bad guys to have them, which is why the George W. Bush administration aided India in the development of its nuclear power capabilities, knowing full well that that would add to the knowledge of the technology necessary to build and make more sophisticated India's arsenal. Against the idea that you need nuclear weapons to protect you against other countries, Is an idea that originated in Germany, in West Germany, and the... 1970s under Willy Brandt and his advisor, Egon Barr. They were looking at a way to solve the dilemma of a divided Germany. And as they thought through this very difficult question, they came to the understanding that it was only with the Soviet Union and not against the Soviet Union as Konrad Adenauer had been that they were going to achieve their goal. And out of that came the idea, as it was expressed a few years later by a UN commission in 1982, of what they called common security. This is that statement that security can now only be achieved in common, no longer against each other, but only with each other shall we be secure. What that meant to them in Europe at the time was that they signed a treaty with the Soviet Union that all the existing borders of the states of Europe would be official and and accepted by all the parties, which looked to the Russians as if Germany was agreeing to remain divided permanently. But in fact, it was the beginning, that discussion and this idea was the beginning of the end of the, Soviet occupation or domination of Eastern Europe. The Palma Commission, which was the UN Commission I mentioned, and which issued a paper on the subject in 1982 called Common Security, said this. All states, even the most powerful, are dependent in the end upon the good sense and restraint of other nations. Everyone has a shared interest in survival. And in the long run, they added, no nation can base its security on the insecurity of others. These ideas, and I don't know the extent to which Willy Brant and Egon Barr and others knew this, but these ideas go back originally to Niels Bohr, the Danish physicist who, when he learned of the American bomb program, thought his way through to the inevitable conclusions of the development of nuclear weapons. I will come back to him, let's see. I'll come back to him at the end and what he said, but I just want to make the point that Bohr saw that when you have an energy source that is essentially unlimited that the whole basis for war, which is that one side accumulates more destructive force than the other in the form traditionally of cannon shells and bombs and bullets and all the rest, that the other side finally capitulates rather than be destroyed. But if both sides have the capacity to tap the energy in the nucleus of atoms, millions of times more per of material than the chemical energy that had been used for centuries to make weapons of war. You short-circuited the whole process. So when Bohr found his way to... In fact, let me skip forward to this. When Bohr found his way to President Roosevelt in 1944, hoping that what he had come to understand about this process and these developments would convince the world's three wartime leaders in the West, meaning Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin, that rather than go through the incredible expense and danger of a nuclear arms race, they should sit down at the outset and realize that no such race could ever be won, that the only possible outcome would be either stalemate or the risk of mutual suicide and essentially the destruction of the human world. Bohr tried to explain that to Roosevelt and Roosevelt was interested. He went to Churchill and Churchill threw him out of his office. Churchill was, Churchill's country was bankrupt by then and the notion, and for Churchill, the only way he could see Britain to survive was if it, if it acquired nuclear weapons itself and allied itself with the United States, which is, of course, how things played out. But in the process, the arms race that Boer foresaw coming came, and it was only, believe me, by the thinnest of margins that we made our way through the Cold War without a Cuban Missile Crisis erupting to the full extent that it might have erupted. There were other Cuban Missile Crisis-like near-misses all the way through the Cold War. There was one, for example, in 1983 when President Reagan moved intermediate-range nuclear missiles into Europe following the failure of negotiations to convince the Russians to remove theirs from Eastern Europe. And then we had a large NATO exercise that fall called Able Archer, which was going to include a practice run-up to nuclear war with the participation of national leaders, such as Margaret Thatcher. And the Soviets, not surprisingly, knowing that one way you start a war is to pretend you're having a war exercise and then go from there. That was the standard way the Soviets started wars. Thought that perhaps the United States was in the process of trying to set up a first strike against their country. It was only at the last minute when President Reagan got word of this development and sent word to Moscow, no, that's not what we're doing, and stood down the exercise that the Russians backed off a little bit and that crisis was over. And I've talked to people who have reason to know in our government and told them that story or reminded them of that story and they've said, oh, there were a lot more events like that than have ever come out. But short of that, Bohr saw that nuclear weapons and the huge amounts of energy that were released in the process were going to short-circuit war, that you simply couldn't fight wars anymore. And I think that's the real message of the last 60 years. The United States was prepared to lose a war with a small third-world country, Vietnam, North Vietnam, rather than introduce nuclear weapons and risk a response from the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was prepared to lose the war in Afghanistan under similar circumstances. The weapons were not deterrent, if by deterrent you mean something that is of use. They deterred at what Washington now likes to call the existential level, meaning they threatened your very existence, and therefore you were careful about when and how you might use them. But they never deterred in the process of negotiations. In fact, the North Vietnamese famously at the Paris peace talks told Henry Kissinger, uh, we knew we could win because we, we knew you wouldn't use nuclear weapons on us. And short of that, we knew we could win. And they did. So let me go then to the question of how we might proceed toward a safer world about with with nuclear weapons under, at very least, reduced numbers and much greater control. And these are steps that, I, as I indicate, have to some degree in the earlier numbers actually already begun. Securing all nuclear materials. As I said earlier, you cannot make nuclear weapons without highly enriched uranium or plutonium-239. No one else has figured out any other materials that can do that job. Some of those materials in the former Soviet Union were dispersed among a lot of laboratories under a system that the Soviets called guns, guards, and gulags. Basically, the whole country was a prison camp, and under those circumstances, nobody could get out, just as nobody could get in. So they really weren't worried about signing out some highly enriched uranium to a lab director somewhere in the vast Soviet Union who wanted to do some experimental work with it because they knew there was no place else it could go. When the walls came down, when the fences came down, when the borders opened, suddenly the former Soviet Union found itself in the same situation we have been in in this country since the beginning of the nuclear age and before, which is open porous borders. So we had devised systems for keeping track of every last gram, supposedly. Uh, we recall the plutonium factory in uh, Boulder, Colorado, which had a bunch of plutonium in the pipes, but that's allowed for and understood as part of the process. In any case, we had real-time accounting systems so that whenever a piece of material was moved from one place to another or transformed chemically or whatever was done with it, it was accounted for in the record. We had systems that protected not only from uh, attacks from the outside, but also theft from the inside, which is something the Soviets had not protected for Because again, where would you go? Someone gave you a million dollars in the former Soviet Union, what good would it be? Um, We've been working with the former Soviet Union since 1990 in a process that has cost the United States a very, very well invested several billion dollars. It's been slower than it might have been because politics intervened. Most of the contractors were required by Congress to be American companies, you know how all this goes. But the process has been ongoing, and Sam Nunn, for one, estimates that about 60% of the former Soviet Union's nuclear materials are now under secure lock and key. Staged reductions, you know we've been doing that and that we're now down with the new START Treaty to a relatively low number in the thousands, but as you saw from the India-Pakistan graph, we really need to be down in the tens, at, 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 at most, it will take a while to get there. And both the United States and Russia are now beginning to talk about the fact that other countries are going to have to come in as well. France has perhaps 300 nuclear weapons, England about 240, Israel anywhere. The estimates are all over the place, but the best estimate is 80 to 100 and so forth. And in the process of, so President Obama has proposed a four-year program to secure all the world's nuclear materials within the next four years. That may be ambitious, I don't know, but it's at least underway, and people are aware of it, and it's the right first step. Then, simultaneously, as has been going on, reducing our nuclear arsenals. At the same time, and this is farther along than you might guess, a worldwide technologically sophisticated, unconstrained inspection system. We have a lot of the system in place as a result of the uh, nuclear test ban treaty, which has to be policed, and therefore there are all sorts of sensors underwater and in, on satellites and elsewhere that keep track. We have an underwater sensing system that can track, in fact, this is the test of the system to be sure it works right, 50 pounds of dynamite exploded as far as 5,000 miles away. So the chance of any country cheating on an agreement about eliminating nuclear weapons is really quite small by the time the whole system is instrumented to a far greater level even than the system we're already building. Nuclear weapon-free zones have been one of the ways that a lot of the world has already cleared out any possibility of nuclear weapons. I think most recently, all of Africa put together a treaty that made it in its entirety a nuclear weapons-free zone. Eventually, you crowd them into the corners, and then you have to deal with those corners. One of the nice things about the idea of a nuclear weapon-free zone in the Middle East is that it might allow Israel to eliminate its considerable nuclear arsenal without ever having to acknowledge that it has one that's actually serious. But then we're left with the hard cases. And the two hardest cases are I really left out of this list, I think the hardest case is going to be the United States of America myself. And I mean that with dead seriousness. I think we're going to have more trouble agreeing to eliminate our last nuclear weapon than any other country, partly because we're We seem to be a country that easily falls into fear, partly because threat inflation and fear-mongering is part and parcel of our domestic politics. Uh, It's going to be a long time, I think, before that last nuclear warhead is disassembled and thrown away. Nevertheless, we know that these countries have particular problems with their security needs that are going to have to be addressed by the rest of the world. Butler, Richard Butler proposed the idea that there be a security council at the UN for nuclear matters that doesn't have a veto, which would mean, of course, that no one on the council could prevent a majority from acting. And then one that I never see anyone talk about, but that is, in fact, one of the reasons why I think we're going to be a hard case. If the rest of the world and we eliminated all our nuclear weapons, we would be proportionally more powerful than we are now because we have such a huge conventional military and conventional weapons systems. Indeed, the reason small countries like North Korea and uh, Pakistan and others have gone nuclear in the past or tried to has been because of their fear of the United States' as conventional force. If Saddam Hussein had indeed developed nuclear weapons, would we have invaded him on the ground twice as we did? I think it highly unlikely. So, that has to be resolved. And the United States has to be willing to discuss reducing the level of our conventional forces. uh, There's a chapter in my book, actually two chapters, devoted to the first war with Iraq back in 1991. I was fascinated in thinking about it for this talk to realize that even though, as it turns out, we thought they had nuclear weapons. This is 91 now, not later. We didn't think they had nuclear weapons. George Bush made that up because he didn't want to stop at the border after clearing them out of Iraq, I mean of uh, Kuwait. He wanted to go on into Iraq and weaken its military. But he needed a reason, and his reason, which was invented, was that the Iraqis were working on nuclear weapons. We didn't know that at the time. After the war was over, we discovered, lo and behold, they were. And it was a very interesting time when inspectors under United Nations control from the International Atomic Energy Agency roved all over Iraq with considerable resistance from the Iraqis, varying year by year, and found what they had made, what they had hidden, what they were already blowing up out in the desert somewhere and blew up the buildings, sent all the ura- uranium and materials out of the country, and basically cleaned the place out. I mentioned that because at some point in time, if a country like Iraq resists the world's demand that they eliminate their nuclear capabilities as part of a move toward complete elimination of nuclear weapons, uh, that's the kind of inspection system that will have to be applied. And I think that speaks also to the question of what if someone cheats. I mentioned that to Richard Butler, and he said, why the whole world would come down upon such a person with a wonderful Australian accent I can't imitate. And he's right. It wouldn't be a question if someone cheated and the neighbors around him let him get away with it, la, la, la. It would be the the whole world would be concerned about any particular country that tried to steal a march on the rest of the world. And to that point, what we're really talking about when we talk about the elimination of nuclear weapons, given the fact that the knowledge is with us and will stay with us as long as we maintain that knowledge, we're really talking about delayed deterrence. If we decided today that we wanted to make the world a little safer, we could agree with Russia that both sides would take the warheads off their missiles and move them into the empty silo next door. And that would mean that it would take about an hour to get the missile ready to launch. And you'd have an hour instead of six minutes or 15 minutes, whatever the number is. If you wanted to go a step farther, you could take off the warhead and put it in a truck and take it 60 miles down the road. And then it might take several, a day or two. You see where this goes. Ultimately, if you've eliminated the physical warheads, disperse the materials, whatever you need to do by agreement with your neighbor countries, there's always the possibility of reconstituting a nuclear arsenal. And under those circumstances, so long as that was secure, it really doesn't matter whether deterrence works in 30 minutes or three months, as long as it's certain. So as the Atchison-Lillienthal so-called Baruch Plan Committee worked out all the way back in 1946, at the very beginning of all of this. Ultimately, in a world where everyone has agreed not to build nuclear weapons, attempting to do so, as Robert Oppenheimer explained to Bernard Baruch, who said, where's your army? How Are you going to police this treaty? Oppenheimer said, well, if another country tried to cheat, that would be an act of war. And every other country in the world would essentially be technically then at war with that country. And you might try diplomacy, and you might try negotiation, and you might try conventional war, which would probably be sufficient. But if all else failed, you could reconstitute your own nuclear arsenal on your own soil. And in the end, we would only be back to where we are now. That's why the notion that it's impossible to make this happen strikes me as so unrealistic it's much more realistic to see how indeed it is possible within the context of the hardest kind of realpolitik thinking, of defense department, what do we need to do to make this solid? Not of idealism or any of those qualities that people seem to think are somewhat less than than real, even though they drive the world. More recently, I saw a paper just yesterday by a British Uh, scholar talking about the idea of a virtual nuclear arsenal. This is in a way a sense sort of like what you'd have on the way to zero. But the idea is simply that you, you get rid of most of your weapons, everybody does, and you have a few dismantled stored away somewhere. And then if you need them, you can put them back together and to threaten or whatever you're going to do with them. So I don't even have to go into detail about that. It really was assumed within the context, except, of course, it has a different endpoint. It says we're not going to get rid of nuclear weapons. We're going to keep a few in a disassembled state. This is basically, by the way, the way Pakistan and India maintained their nuclear arsenals. I talked with a Pakistani general in Monterey a couple of years ago who said, well, you know, we don't have first-strike capabilities on either side. Both sides have disassembled warheads. The pieces are kept in separate places, partly for security, partly because we don't see any reason to assemble them and have them ready except in the course of building up toward a war. Well, that doesn't sound like the American theory, but that's the way, in fact, India and Pakistan maintain their arsenals. So it's rather something like this. So again, it's been tested in the real world. It doesn't simply... Somebody's idea. I'm going to close out here because I know you'd like to talk and raise some questions. This is Bohr in his comment to Roosevelt in its purest form. It seems so simple. I have spent 30 years thinking about this this sentence and what it means. And it means everything. It's about the fundamental change that came to the world when we learned how to release the incredible energies locked in the nucleus of the atom, that seemed like a tabletop invention, an an experiment, discovery. It has led to such enormous changes in human life and in human welfare. Immediately and since 1945, a vast reduction in the number of man-made deaths from war from a height in 1943, and this had been an almost uh, exponential climb since the 18th century as technology was applied to war, to a height in 1943 of something like 25 million deaths that year, dropping off abruptly in 1945 to about a million or a million and a half a year and staying there ever since because of this discovery because science went about its work of discovering how the world really works rather than how we wish it would work. That's where we are, and now we're kind of at a crossroads, and we have a lot of choices, interesting choices, choices that could lead to a very different world from the one we've lived in. Sometimes this need to make sure everyone's secure before you eliminate nuclear weapons looks to me like the idea that Once we have world peace, you can eliminate nuclear weapons. But in fact, the two go together in a curious way. They ask each other the question of what do we need to do to be secure as a nation and as a people, we and all the other nations and peoples. I think we're a long way down that road. I think we're left with very few areas and nations that are still so struggling to find some trivial phrase, comfort zone for themselves, but uh, you know what I mean, who are struggling to find a place in the world and a way to express their, their genius and their talents to fill their needs without resorting to war and to violence. Thank you.
0: Nick, let's go over and uh, have a seat. I'm supposed to sit on the right side because my mic is on my left and it's a little more attractive for the video camera. You sit there and this is where the uh, cards Ah. go. (laughs) I'm curious, there's what, nine nations that have nuclear weapons? Um, The ones that looked at it Seriously, South Africa, Sweden, they built Sweden, they build them and then stopped. Sweden, and the ones that looked at it and, and then backed off, what, what did they go through? And is that a model for the future somehow?
1: You know, almost every country that has the industrial capability to build nuclear weapons looked at them at some point or another, and therefore had different reasons. The most egregious example is probably South Africa, which actually built seven didn't quite finish the seventh, seven World War II type gun bombs. Ostensibly so that if all those 45,000 Cuban troops in Angola descended on South Africa in the later years of the Cold War, they would, they said, be able to call up the United States and say, "Um, by the way, we have some nuclear weapons and we don't want to use them. Would you help us out of this dilemma? (laughs) That's what they said officially as their reason. But the truth is underneath that program and behind that seven bombs for diplomacy's sake program, they were actually working on thermonuclear weapons, more sophisticated weapons, implosion bombs and so forth. What happened was the Cold War ended Mm -hmm. and they no longer had a reason to maintain a nuclear arsenal and they felt isolated from the rest of the world. And in addition, of course, their government was going to turn over to black leaders. One of the reasons they eliminated their nuclear arsenal was they didn't want them to fall in the hands of the African leaders who were going to take their place. Not a very attractive reason, but at least they got rid of the things. So that's one. How about Lib-
0: Libya? What happened in Libya? You know, the Libya other never Africa.
1: had the technological capability, so hmm? Gaddafi kept trying to buy the bombs from <laughs> Pakistan and elsewhere, and interestingly, all these countries that we used to call rogue states weren't prepared to sell nuclear weapons to anybody certainly not to Gaddafi or a terrorist group or all the things that we hear fearfully proposed, we intercepted a ship that was loaded with some of uh, A.Q. Khan's centrifuges and so forth on its way to Libya and presented Gaddafi with the goods and basically told him, we're going to blockade you if you continue this, and he wisely chose to go the other way. Sweden is an interesting example. I spoke with a couple of Swedish scientists who had worked on developing the basic capabilities and knowledge to build nuclear weapons back in the 50s, when a lot of countries were looking. Norway was looking, Australia was looking, countries that you wouldn't even think of now. Canada was looking. So I asked them what happened and they said, well, we had conceived of of, of tactical nuclear weapons in case a tank swarm arrived from Russia to cross our borders. This would slow it down they said but when the Soviet Union got thermonuclear weapons we realized that two of them would destroy a whole country and at that point it seemed, seemed silly to build some bombs that he said though but we learned from that some of the things that helped us later when we were part of the UN dealing with South Africa to, to trace and track down their hidden program sort of Something good came out of it. maybe that 's a Swedish trade
0: i 've heard um, a rare but but interesting critique from some military guys that um, well, his history indicates that uh, basically since the one use in one thousand nine hundred and forty five in war, no major armed states have fought in other words, to a certain extent, mutually assured destruction worked and Therefore, that might lead you to think that, well, if all nuclear weapons were eliminated, then the major conventionally now armed states might just have a nice old-fashioned conventional war.
1: You know, we really seem to have moved beyond that. even, Even during our attacks on Iraq, and they were far more destructive of civilian life than I think we acknowledged, we have been moving in terms of weaponry and how our weapons work away from... And one of the people who deserves great credit for that is Bill Perry, who was Under Secretary of Defense for technical stuff during the 1970s and 80s and who pioneered the development of stealth aircraft, of satellite communication systems for the battlefield, systems that basically were designed to make war more precise. And I know from talking to Bill, that one of the reasons he did that was to make nuclear weapons even more useless than they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you've given up on the notion that the only way to fight a war is to kill millions of people in the cities of the world, then you really don't need nuclear weapons anymore because that's all they're
0: good for. Three questions, all asking in forms of the same thing. Alex G, Chris McCarthy, and, and uh, Gordon, might be Can, Lamb. Um, Can decommissioned nuclear weapons be put to good use? Is there there any uh, plowshare in this? This is uh, one of the most
1: wonderful stories about the post-Cold War period. I have about a half a chapter in in Twilight of the Bombs on this. A physicist at MIT back in the mid-90s, about 1993, thought of the idea, what are the Russians gonna do with all that highly enriched uranium that forms the primary in most of their bombs? It's dangerous stuff. It gets in the wrong hands. And what he thought of was we could blend it down to the 3% enrichment level of nuclear power plant fuel instead of 93% for bomb fuel and then sell that to American nuclear power plants and it wouldn't cost us anything. The Russians would get the money and we would burn the stuff up in a way that it could never be used for a bomb again. Today... We've about halfway through the Russian stockpile of about five or 600 tons of highly enriched uranium, and a considerable percentage of all the electricity generated in the United States is being generated in nuclear power plants from Russian warhead material. <laughs> I've told people that who are very anti-nuclear, and they said, that's the first reason I've ever heard why I might like nuclear power. So that's what's happened to that. The plutonium is a more difficult problem, but I think... It can be stored, and in time we're going to want to recycle it into nuclear power as well, especially with the new kinds of reactors that are being developed here and in France and elsewhere.
0: Well, you're kind of a liberal, peacenik sort of guy in some respect. Uh, You're saying rather friendly things about nuclear power here. Um,
1: I'm very pro-nuclear power, And and I started out anti You can find an article of mine in Playboy back in the 70s attacking some city for having a nuclear power plant. What happened? I talked to the scientists who developed it. Uh I looked at the technology and I came away with a real sense that it is by far the best solution among other solutions because no one solution is going to solve all the different energy problems we have. Mm -hmm. For generating clean non-greenhouse gas energy from a small physical footprint source that produces steady energy, can produce 24 hours a day, year in and year out, the waste of which is very small in volume. And the question that of course has come up most recently as anti-nuclear people have looked in stages of what might be wrong, the question now is what do you do with the waste? Mm -hmm. For that, you need to go to southern New Mexico to a place called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, which is a nuclear waste burial site that consists of about a two kilometer thick layer of pure crystalline salt that has been there since the Permian 250 million years ago, and that is 16,000 square miles in extent. Extends all the way up to southeastern Kansas this bed of salt is presently being used for military waste because the governor of New Mexico didn't like the politics of putting civilian waste in his state. But they simply drill a hole. They, they've made tunnels all around under there, about one kilometer down. They drill a hole in the salt, slide in a 55-gallon barrel, put in a salt plug. When the room is full, they seal it and walk away. The salt anneals around these containers and slowly crushes them in, And basically makes them a coherent part of the whole mass of salt, which will be there for. Potentially, although I'm sure we won't take other countries' waste, all the world's nuclear waste for the next thousand years could be stored in this salt pit. But in fact, as I'm sure you know, Sweden has recently begun Mm -hmm. building a permanent waste in the basal granite in in that country. Mm -hmm. The French are working on this. The other part of this is recycling the fuel so that 98% of it isn't buried, the 98% that's still good to make energy with. You only burn up about 2% of a load of nuclear fuel in a reactor in the course of one period. It's crazy to put all that in the ground. We'll run out of uranium in a couple hundred years. But with the recycled material and the plutonium included in the fuel in time, we're good for 10,000 years.
0: Let's have the lights up a little bit here. I'm curious to see what the audience is doing for some of these things.
1: <laughs> yes. Um,
0: but w- w- one more point on that, because it really comes back to your whole point. And, and indeed, you said during your talk that uh, you thought the Bush administration was encouraging nuclear energy in India, partly with an idea to quietly encouraging, basically, their nu- nuclear weapons capability. Yeah. So,
1: That's been the effect of what they did.
0: Is proliferation an automatic... Uh, byproduct of the expansion of nuclear power.
1: If you're using that example, it's an automatic byproduct of a really benighted sense of what to do with nuclear weapons in Mm -hmm. the world. The idea that the good guys, I mean, let's face it, sometimes the good guys turn out later to be bad guys. Sometimes bad guys turn out to be good guys. Mm -hmm. The fact is the bad guys are the weapons. It is ultimately these containers of man-made death Mm -hmm. that we need to be concerned with. The analogy that I give to audiences, and I think for me it's the most profound way of thinking about this whole issue that I've found in 30 years, is the conquest, if I may call it that, of biologic disease, of epidemic disease, Mm -hmm. over the last 150 years. Through the development of systems for keeping track of outbreaks of the disease, of going in and taking control of that area and helping the people with whatever needs to be done. We have moved from a time when the average human lifespan was something like 30 years to an era, as you know, where we're pushing 90 and more. And we did that not with elaborate technological developments. We did it basically by cleaning up the water supply, by dealing with sewage, by vaccinating people and so forth. Half of the American population today would not be alive had it not been for improvements in public health in the first half of the 20th century. A quarter would never have died before uh, childbirth age, and another quarter would never have been born. So there is a model, and what happened? Disease used to be considered a moral issue. God put disease on people on cities, on towns, on populations, on groups, if they broke his rules. And as long as it was thought of that way as a moral issue, there really wasn't much to do about it. It was when it was taken out of the context of normative values and moved into the context of, of basically scientific values as a problem that we all shared in common. That's where the, the Bohr idea connects for me with public health. We all... Agree, that diseases aren't a good thing. When the United States, when when the Soviet Union proposed the eradication of smallpox back in the late 50s at the UN, once the various countries that were going to participate came to believe it was even possible, and it had to be proved, particularly in India, which said, we've had this disease forever, once it was shown to be possible, everybody participated. Americans went into the Soviet Union to vaccinate, Uh, (laughs) North Koreans went into wherever. People from every country crossed borders as if they weren't there because it was a common problem to all. And that's Bohr's idea of common security as well.
0: And at the same time that was going on, uh, the Soviet Union was... This is the other piece of the story. ...generating tons of weaponized smallpox. It
1: turns out the reason the Soviets proposed this was Mm -hmm. so that they could have a world population that no longer had any... Biological defense against smallpox, so that they could develop better weapons of mass destruction. We didn't. We didn't check for that. Whereas with nuclear weapons, I assume that's what we're going to check for.
0: That's just not reassuring, Dick. Uh, There's a question from Allison Smith. Are biological weapons the new nuclear? From
1: a strictly logical point of view, smallpox has been eradicated. Right. Whatever the purpose, that's was the 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 result.
0: There still is weaponized smallpox in existence.
1: Yes, in our labs and in Soviet Russian labs and elsewhere. Yeah, right.
0: And are there the question from uh, Allison Smith is uh, do we have treaties on these the way we do about nuclear weapons? Treaties on on the uh, biological weapons. Oh Yeah. yeah,
1: sure. That was actually the first major weapon of mass destruction treaty that was put through, and Nixon used... It was Nixon, and he used the argument, or it was used on him, actually, by Michael Maselson at Harvard, who was the one who spearheaded this, this treaty, that, ask your generals, if there were a biologic weapons attack on the United States, would they use biological weapons, or would they use nuclear weapons? And the generals all said, well, of course, we'd use nuclear weapons. So they, we signed that treaty.
0: Now, you talked about the... <laughs> Um, You know, could... There is a sort of
1: a scent of madness about all of this, don't you think?
0: (laughs) There's a question you sort of left hanging is the, the hardest case, in a way, is the U.S. to be persuaded that its conventional capabilities are somehow sufficient. And my understanding is that the sort of next generation of intercontinental extension of force that doesn't involve sending a fleet... Right. Is sending basically uh, missiles that, that fly rather than go ballistic, and can fly anywhere in the world, and then explode either with either with fuel air or explosions like that, and you know take out a gerrymandered district of a city basically in a hysterically uh, surgical way, or
1: a or a particular installation somewhere. Yeah, uh, does that do
0: the trick? Does that make these things obsolete?
1: No, in fact, it makes it worse because it's almost impossible to distinguish between an ICBM with a conventional warhead and an ICBM with a nuclear warhead.
0: Yeah, but this is not an ICBM. These are things that fly low. Well, mm-hmm. they,
1: they, they're not ballistic, but mm-hmm. they are. The reason they, they do that is for stealth reasons, mm-hmm. so they can't be taken out by space-based defenses. Right. The the, Soviet, the Russians have developed similar ICBMs, or, or whatever you want to call them, but mm-hmm. the real point is they're conventional warheads. We can now hit any place on the surface of the Earth using GPS within two or three feet, Mm-hmm. And you don't need a nuclear warhead to do that. You right. can use normal high explosives.
0: So these things are obsolete, you're saying? Which the, the nuclear weapons are just—it's uh, another you, you example. Got nothing but a sledgehammer yes, they for, are.
1: But at the same time, introducing a whole new class of strategic weapons is going to complicate things just that much more.
0: Do you think that is going to be headed off, or is coming anyway?
1: This whole negotiation that President Obama has, I think, very bravely undertaken is going to meet, I think, in this country, immense resistance from the military-industrial-scientific complex, and I don't use those terms as a radical or something. It is there. It lives on this money, 60, 50 billion a year. Uh, I just learned recently, you may have come across the story too, John Kyle's Price for allowing this new START treaty to be ratified in the Senate mm-hmm. is an $80 billion renewal and upgrade of the whole nuclear weapons lab complex in America. Now, on the one hand, I don't have any problem with that, although I think that's too much money, mm-hmm. but we will always need our national labs to keep up with the knowledge of nuclear weapons to protect us. Mm-hmm at that level. They will be our deterrent, if you will. So we certainly want to keep them happy and building laser power systems and all the good things that they're doing these days. But on the other hand, that's going to be the whole large establishment that has, that has grown fat since through the Cold War, as, as Kenan was talking about. It's going to have to be stood down. And politically, I think it's not going to be easy. So it's a big, big task, and I can easily imagine that we'll get down to a few hundred weapons on every side and stop there mm-hmm. for quite a long time. Huh. The, the, the image that I think of are those forts on both sides of the U.S.-Canadian border where the old cannon are still lined up with at the, at the mm-hmm. holes in the parapet and the stack of cannonballs is right there next to the cannon. But we don't use them anymore. I can see us being there for quite a while.
0: Thinking of your virtual uh, nuclear arsenal, um, the co-designer and co-founder of Long Now Foundation is Danny Hillis, who developed uh, the first major massive parallel processing Mm -hmm. computer the thinking machines. And um, that was bought up very early on by uh, the people who were trying to model nuclear explosions. And the idea was that instead of, this partly explained that dying down in the last decade or so of the testing is, mm-hmm. they were tested in computers rather than in the ground in Nevada. Yeah.
1: Looking toward a time mm-hmm. when they wouldn't be allowed to test anymore, truth be told.
0: And so, <laughs> that's interesting. I'm getting an Ender's Game phenomenon idea. <laughs> you know, this whole thing is played out in virtual terms and virtual megadeths and so on. The I knew Herman Kahn a little bit. Did you ever talk to him? And Herman Kahn was this guy who wrote a book called Thinking the Unthinkable at a time when some people thought it was the most dreadful thing in the world to try to think rationally about nuclear weapons. They wanted them to be a taboo. And indeed, Herman said later that the only way to really control nuclear weapons is for society to basically treat them as a taboo, yeah. that, that this, is, uh, this is repellent and it's beneath human behavior to contemplate really using them, but at the time thinking the unthinkable and starting to do equations and starting to play out the crazy but nevertheless operational logic of second strike capability which led to packet switching which led to the internet, the um, whole idea of, of mutually assured destruction meaning no destruction was he onto something? Is Raman Khan a hero or a villain in the story?
1: You know, I looked at his work and the work of what I call the nuclear mandarins. <clears throat> it was bullshit. <laughs> and I say that because the military was the one that was going to do the arming and the launching of these weapons. And in Europe, for example, where it was clear to the US forces involved in NATO that use them or lose them was going to be very much the the story with the countries so close together with so little distance between the Soviet side and the Western side. The military was going to throw out everything at once. That was always the plan. That was Curtis LeMay's plan. That was everybody else's plan. So all of the clever strategies of This could do that, and this could do that, and you could send a little message here, maybe a little white envelope around that warhead. Baloney, it just was never gonna happen. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether they knew that or not. Mm -hmm. They were making very good livings and, and developing great reputations with their elaborate, sophisticated calculations, but they had very little to do, as so much did in the nuclear age with the real world and human beings. Lynn Eden, who's a professor at Stanford and a co-director of the Center for Security and International Cooperation, wrote a book several years ago, which is one of the most brilliant books in this whole area. It's called Whole Worlds on Fire. And what she discovered was that all the nuclear targeting guys only calculated the blast effects of nuclear weapons. They did that because the tradition in the military was precision targeting had been until we couldn't hit the targets during the Second World War, and then we went to area bombing, but we didn't like it very much, and it didn't feel right, and after the war, we went back to the idea of hitting individual targets, and they tried to replicate that secure sense of accuracy and and restraint with thermonuclear warheads, (laughs) when in fact the real destruction is fire, as I said earlier, and So you would have 60 warheads targeted on every telephone exchange in Moscow, but we would say officially we didn't target cities. So, insanity.
0: Coming from the insane past to the quasi-sane present, uh, Tom has the question. uh, You're talking about hard cases. How would you resolve Mm -hmm. the security concerns of Pakistan and Iran now?
1: Well, I think Pakistan and India have done a pretty good job of beginning that process. Really? They got very close to a nuclear war in 1999 in a bizarre argument over some little piece of territory way up in the Himalayas at about 10,000 feet Mm -hmm. and came very close to having a nuclear exchange, and it scared them, as it should have, (coughs) and they backed off, and we encouraged them to back off, (coughs) and they have been working despite some really deep conflicts culturally between the two countries, they have been trying to find some common ground to to work through. And I think the fact that they, Pakistan, up to that point, had maintained its nuclear weapons fully assembled and ready to go. And since then, they have moved to the Indian strategy of, of, of disassembled, uh, delayed deterrence, basically, which in
0: itself is a great step forward. And are they mutually transparent about that? They each knows that the other is disassembling? Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm.
1: because I've read it in the open press, so Mm -hmm. I assume they must. So uh, that problem is perhaps going to find its way through. Iran is you know, what to say about a country that feels threatened and humiliated and generally disrespected that has been struggling now off and on for 20 years to build a nuclear weapon and hasn't even got that far yet uh, unlike their neighbor Iraq, which was much farther down the road, this whole thing began for Iran in the context of their constant fighting back and forth with Iraq. And it's only lately become mixed up with U.S. points of view in politics. I mean, I've had people say, well, when they get a nuclear weapon, they'll give it to terrorists who will attack the United States with it. Can you imagine? People who have struggled to to hold their country together and achieve positions of power voluntarily asked to be nuked so that they can make a point about their religion? I just cannot conceive it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I don't think anyone in their right mind in in Iran or anywhere else can conceive it either. What I suspect will play out will be something like what's been going on with Pakistan and India, and the more recent what I think of as the 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 new third tier of nuclear powers or would-be nuclear powers in Southeast Asia and the Middle East. I think the key key is probably Israel and its nuclear capabilities, and that's why the latest effort, which Israel has somewhat reluctantly agreed to begin to talk with the other countries about, is to move toward a nuclear-free zone in the Middle East. That would, with the security guarantees that would be necessary to make that work, I think that would give everyone a chance, with pride and with dignity, to step back, hmm. and to. And I mean, I'm being optimistic here, and we've, but we've heard the other scenarios, and I think it's good once in a while to ask what would be a good outcome from a circumstance. Every country, including ours, despite all the domestic conflict over this issue, every country has strong reasons to. Get rid of its nuclear weapons because when you acquire nuclear weapons, you make yourself a potential threat to every other nation in the world, particularly the other nuclear powers. And that's not necessarily a very comfortable place to be if you're Pakistan or Iran or whomever. So there's strong motivation, but there's also the countervailing force. You know, the Minister of Defense of India, when they tested that whole series of weapons in 1998, said to the press, now the big boys are going to have to let us sit at the table. There's no question that that had a lot to do with the feeling of national prestige that had been wanting and the whole post-colonial struggle about recognition as, as a country of equals. So these things, you know, my book opens with the sentence, when the ice broke on the river of history at the end of the Cold War, everything was so locked up with the two sides and everyone aligned with each one or the other, that fell away. And we are now seeing all the rearrangements at every different level that must follow in a more multilateral world than we had through all those years.
0: Now you raised, and you're talking in the book, the point of that we're now in the process of basically inventorying and tracking all of the highly enriched uranium in the world, and yeah. this is a step toward really mastering this whole thing. There's also talk of fuel banking for nuclear power, of the basically low enriched uranium also being kept track of in a sense by. And, uh, Some Obama pushed this in, yeah. in in Prague and so on. And Israel finally wants nuclear power as well as nuclear weapons after all this time. And Iran actually does need nuclear power. Yeah, and. So the idea is that if you can get an international nuclear fuel bank going, as part of a demilitarizing, de-weaponizing of fissile material, right. this, this all becomes a package somehow. Does right. that make sense? Or is that a it?
1: It makes great sense. And I remember when I first heard the idea, thinking, "Well, that's obvious and transparent," but. We offered something like that recently to the Iranians. Uh-huh. And at least in the context of the much more dicey relationship between the uh-huh. United States and Iran, they really wanted very nothing to do with it, basically. They were willing to give some fuel to be
0: taken abroad, but not all. But United Arab Emirates has said they would go along with a deal like that. And I think
1: in the longer run, as these other problems are adjusted for, Mm -hmm. that seems to me to be a reasonable solution. Ironically, it goes all the way back to the Addison lilienthal plan Mm -hmm. because that's the way they saw international organizations mining and making the fuel for nuclear power rather than individual countries doing that.
0: So are you so optimistic you're not going to write another book about nuclear weapons?
1: (laughs) Well, this book comes up to the present Mm-hmm. So I don't know.
0: If, All right, ten I mean, years I'm looking, from now, uh-huh. as
1: you know, I'm looking for another very large subject that I'd like to work on, and I'm thinking about. Tell us about. It. I think thinking about about a book that would be called the Making of the Digital Age, which no one has written, possibly probably because it would be almost impossible to write. <laughs> but that was true maybe at the outset in my thinking about. You know, when I wrote The Making of the Atomic Bomb, I wasn't going to stop in 1945. Silly me, I was gonna write the whole story. And of course, my, my editors wisely said, uh, why don't you stop at the end of the Second World War? You can maybe write about the rest later. And I was at 800 pages of, of published book by then, so I did. But there is a tremendous story about another deep and profound transformation in human life that's involved in the digital process that's been coming up since the late 19th century. And no one has written that book, so if I can find someone who would like to help me write it, financially speaking, because publishers aren't really paying for books anymore, Hmm. they've cut their advances back to the point where you're lucky if an advance for a three-year project pays your taxes in the first year. I mean, so that People at Stanford I've spoken with are saying, well, the new model for writing a serious book is to find a foundation that's willing to give you a grant and on that basis write the book and then find a publisher if you can.
0: We're back to the old patron approach to, uh, to art. Well, in a
1: sense, the publisher used to share the risk with you by giving you an advance on what they expected the book would earn. But books aren't doing terribly well. They're much more cautious than they were. They're banking everything on the the hopeless long-term idea that if they publish enough huge bestsellers by celebrities, Mm -hmm. that that will tide them over, when in fact publishers have always lived on backlists. The good, solid books that pub- sell it year in and year out for years and years. The making of the atomic bomb only sold 30,000 copies in its first year because that's all my publisher credit, And it
0: won all the prizes Won all the prizes
1: and has sold steadily every year since then and is now well up above 600,000 right. just in English. So those things used to sustain publishers and authors. Hmm. And that's all gone. So a new model is being devised.
0: So final question. Um, But that's, I
1: think, a wonderful idea for a book that I would love to read. Well, compare and contrast
0: your your sort of motivation, uh, the idea that came to you to write a book about the making of the digital age to cast your mind back to what motivated you to write The Making of the Atomic Bomb and what's the difference between the then and now and those two motivations. You know,
1: that book came up in the late 1970s when it really looked as if we were in an arms race to annihilation. Uh And then as I was writing and Ronald Reagan was elected and he really ratcheted up the tension between the United States and the Soviet Union so that I felt that I was almost rushing to finish a book that maybe could give, find some ideas for how to change everything. And I think it did by finding what Bohr thought about
0: all this. So that was a bad news story. So that was a
1: bad, I think this is basically a good news story, but One of the things that I know about technology from writing about it for a long time is that often the most dramatic part of a new development is the unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. The classic case being nuclear weapons. We all thought that they were going to be great new weapons of war. And in fact, they eliminated large-scale war and almost eliminated us in the process. So this would be maybe a more, I mean, my wife wisely tells me every now and then, don't be a hell-in-the-handbasket guy as you get older. And, and I want to be the opposite. So here's a subject I think I could get into. I remember as a boy in 1951 reading the new book, I, Robot, by Isaac Asimov. Ah. And, and in my adolescence, I and my friends got our first taste of philosophy looking at those famous three I forgot what they were called rules for robots about how a robot could behave ethically in the world. That was my first introduction to the idea that there are ethical ways to live. So I think that that part of my my
0: distant past will come back with this book. This will be an interesting question. Uh, How old are you? 73. Yeah, I'm 71. And I'm not entirely sure that the likes of us can write about a really fast-moving current history domain like this one. I mean, in a way, the nuclear power kind of rose pretty fast, nuclear weapons rose pretty fast, and then pretty much plateaued, and then it was dealing with what it had plateaued at. This is a real different story.
1: It is, and yet that whole past is there, and many of the people who are central to it are still around and won't be around forever. And most of them live within an hour of my house, for God's sake. So so if I get old and crotchety, I can still drive my electric cart, you know, down the road to talk to the others and find out what they did.
0: A neighborhood story. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming tonight.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much. Great fun.